Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain, inspire, and inform you about all things running. I'm Christine Fennessy, one of the producers here at Runner's World. This week we have a very special show for you, a roundtable on the topic of heart health and running. Every year, typically during marathon season, we hear stories, some inspiring and others tragic, of people suffering sudden cardiac arrest in a race. And in the past few years, there's been a steady drip of news articles with hyperbolic statements like, too much running will kill you. It's a lot of information to digest, and it can all get very confusing very fast. So when Dr. Jordan Metzl proposed assembling an all-star roundtable of experts on the runner's heart, we thought, yes, this is the perfect way to make sense of the headlines. In addition to being a marathoner and Ironman, Jordan is a sports medicine physician, author, creator of the Iron Strength Workout DVD series, and a member of our advisory board here at Runner's World. He was also the moderator of this discussion, which took place in Boston this past April on Easter Sunday, the day before the Boston Marathon. It was a big topic for 7 a.m., but as you'll hear, some of our panelists had a mighty packed schedule that day. Welcome to Boston. We're really happy this morning to be joined by four outstanding people and outstanding people in the field of heart and running uh, to talk about the issues of cardiac safety and running. We are joined this morning by Ambie Burfoot, Dr. Paul Thompson, Dave McGilvery, and Dr. Aaron Bagish, each of whom has a different story to tell about their relationship to the issues of heart disease and running. Ambie Burfoot is the 1968 Boston Marathon winner the former editor-in-chief and currently contributing writer for Runner's World. He's finished 75 marathons, and he's logged 110,000 lifetime miles. Great to see you, Ambie. Very happy to join everyone. Dr. Paul Thompson is the director of cardiology of the Athletes' Heart Program at Hartford Hospital, a lifelong runner. He qualified for the 1972 U.S. Olympic Marathon Trials and finished 16th in the Boston Marathon in 1976. He's been Ambie's doctor for four years. So glad to see you, Paul. Thank you for having me. Dave McGilvery is perhaps best known as the race director for the Boston Marathon. He's a lifelong runner. He's completed more than 145 marathons, 146 on Monday, nine Ironmans, and he's run across America several times. He's logged more than 150,000 miles of running in his life. Dave, this is a very busy morning for you. Thank you so much for being here the day before the Boston Marathon. Thanks for taking me away from all the hectic that's going on out there right now. Dr. Aaron Bagish is the Associate Director of the Cardiovascular Performance Program at the Massachusetts General Hospital Heart Center. He's also the co-medical director of the Boston Marathon and a lifelong marathoner. He's also been Dave's doctor for the past seven years. Aaron, we're so glad you're here. Great to be with you, Jordan. And finally, I'm Dr. Jordan Metzl. I'll be your moderator today as we delve into this issue of heart disease and running. As a sports medicine doctor, I love to run. I want my patients to run. I'm also a devoted athlete myself. I've done now 35 marathons and 14 Ironman, and the issues of cardiac safety come up in my office all the time. Patients want to know, is running good for my heart? Is it bad for my heart? Today, we're going to try and address this in a way that most have not done, which is really do a deep dive into the issues of cardiac safety and running. And it's an interesting topic because there have been big studies uh, looking at population data in runners, and they live longer, they're healthier, they have less heart problems, lower blood pressure, etc. But on the same time, there have been some very well-publicized cardiac-related fatalities in running. 
Um, so when these happen, they get a lot of notoriety. So it's a very interesting topic because on one hand, we want people to get out and move and be active and run. On the other hand, there's been a lot of press around the issue of cardiac safety and running. So Paul, I'm going to start with you and ask you the question, basically, is running good for your heart? Well, I, I think it's unequivocally the evidence is uh, overwhelming that the uh, running is good for your heart. So that's a pretty simple question to answer. We encourage all people to be physically active and uh, do a lot of exercise. The question is, where do your benefits plateau? In other words, beyond what amount of exercise are you getting additional benefit or are you getting relatively little additional benefit? The overall point to take home, however, is that in the United States, our problem is not too much exercise. Our problem is too little exercise. And so across the board, I routinely ask my patients how much they exercise, and I encourage them to start exercising if they don't. Gotcha. And so, Paul, then you're saying that you want to get people up and get them moving. But Aaron, uh, there, Paul has kind of spoken to this issue of you know too much and the risk of too much for the for the heart. Now, in my practice, too much for the body is things like stress fractures and tendonitis, and we know a lot about that. We don't know as much about too much for the heart. What's your thought on that? Well, I think as Paul said, there's a point at which diminishing returns occur, and I think the the jury is somewhat still out with respect to whether you can push the envelope to, so far that you actually start doing more harm than good. I think as someone that takes care of lots and lots of very dedicated athletes, I don't see a whole lot of this. I see a lot of people that enjoy all the benefits of running who push their bodies quite hard. But I think it all boils down to one-on-one conversations with individual patients. And Paul, do most athletes know if they're getting or suffering? In my office, if they're getting a stress fracture, they come hobbling in and they know it. Do most people know if they're at risk for a heart problem? I think most people don't uh, recognize they're at risk for a heart problem. And I think those of us who are big exercise advocates, and make no doubt about it, I'm a big exercise advocate, I think what happens is that people forget that there are other risk factors for heart disease. In other words, exercise reduces your risk of heart disease. But there are so many other things that contribute to heart disease, whom you picked for parents because genetics is a big deal. What's your blood pressure, your cholesterol, whether you ever smoked or not, whether you have diabetes or a tendency toward diabetes. So exercise is one component of over cardiovascular health. The issue is people tend to look at exercise as the savior of all mankind, and so they don't pay attention to their other risk factors. Interesting. And Aaron, is the mechanism for, so we've, we've seen, and I mentioned at the top, several cardiac-related uh, fatalities from that happen during running. Is the mechanism of these the same? Do they all happen the same way or are there different types of things that they kind of present the same way? Yeah, no, no, no case is, is identical. I think if you want to break this down in very simple terms, when young people go down during any sort of exercise event, it's usually some either genetic or congenital problem that they were born with or developed at a very early point in life. Uh, on the flip side, when older athletes have trouble, it's typically some disease process that they developed during the course of their life, almost always atherosclerotic coronary disease, which I assume we'll be talking about in some detail later on. But young and old, very, very different. Gotcha. And Paul, we're sitting in a room full of men. We have both of you guys, but we have two male patients who we're going to talk to who are very experienced runners. Uh, what's the gender issue here, and is there a gender issue? What's the gender breakdown? There's a big gender issue because if you try to study sudden death during exercise, it is not entirely, but it's largely a problem of men. The, uh, the rates of sudden death during exercise in women are remarkably lower. Now, there are probably a couple of reasons for that. As Aaron pointed out, most of the causes of sudden death in adults is atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And what that refers to is the depositing of cholesterol 
in the heart arteries, atherosclerotic, depositing of cholesterol in the heart arteries. And women are protected from that to some degree. They get their heart attacks about 10 years later than a man does, just on average. So there aren't a lot of jogging grandmothers. So uh, the fact is you have to be older to be a woman to get it, and, and they're just protected from sudden death in general. Now, what do I mean by that? If you take women and men with identical sort of hearts and whatever, the women tend to have sudden cardiac death less frequently. Nobody knows why. A lot of us have speculated it's related to the size of the heart. The bigger a heart is, the bigger its risk to have what we call ventricular fibrillation. Now, what's that? That's simply when the heart doesn't contract by squeezing, it kind of quivers. It's kind of twitches. And when the heart twitches, it can't move blood along. Ventricular fibrillation seems to be more frequent in big hearts. Men tend to have bigger hearts. And Aaron, uh, the question for you is about this kind of issue of what puts the heart at risk. Is it intensity? Is it distance? You, kind of, you guys both at the top talked about too much. Are you talking about too much intensity, too much volume, both? Uh, give, me some, give me some information here. Well, from the perspective of sudden death, I think the most um, striking fact, and we see this repeated over and over when this is studied, particularly with marathon running, is that sudden deaths tend to occur within sight of the finish line. So if you're asking about the key trigger for a sudden collapse due to heart disease, it's an intensity issue. There's something about an athlete's ability to run 26.1 miles without any issues, see the finish line, dive into a finish line surge and exceed whatever their safety threshold may be that causes these collapses. And invariably, when you look at arrest cases during long distance events, they occur at the finish line. And that's simply an intensity function. So when I talk to my patients about volume versus intensity, we spend a lot of time, particularly in people that have established heart disease, helping them understand intensity thresholds and paying a lot less attention to volume. Interesting. Um, Paul, do most runners know if they are at risk for cardiovascular disease? Do most runners know they are walking around with a heart condition? No, most runners do not, both among the young group and among the older group, It's um, because it kind of comes out of the blue. And remember, what we're talking about is actually a pretty rare phenomenon. Now, it gets a lot of attention. What does not get a lot of attention is the number of people who avoided getting a heart attack because they exercise all their lives. So what gets attention is the sudden death during exercise. Not paid attention to is the people who do well. But it's, it's a relatively rare event. For example, we studied the incidence or the number of deaths in the state of Rhode Island when I was there in the early 1980s. And we found that among healthy joggers, there was only one death per year for every 15,000 healthy joggers. So that's literally the needle in the haystack. So it's hard for the person to know that because they're a needle in a haystack. It's hard for the clinician, for the cardiologist to know that because they're the needle in the haystack. The patient's the needle in the haystack. But the, the point is, it's very, it's a rare event. And no, people don't know they have it. Now, similarly, among a lot of um, young individuals who drop dead suddenly, they're what we call the index case. They're the first time that we realize that that family had a genetic problem or something else going on. So it's very hard to know. And that brings us to the whole thing about should we be screening everyone? Should we not be screening everyone? A big debate. But the issue goes back to the fact that even though these are tragic, devastating events, they're quite rare. And that's why screening and other things is a difficult uh, discussion. And Aaron, this issue of uh, these well-publicized but relatively few instances of cardiac-related death that happen during running, there's a whole topic around kind of when science is done properly and we get good data around topics such as the protective effect of exercise and jogging on your heart, 
versus a few outlying cases that get a lot of publicity. Can you talk a little bit about why these well-publicized cases have attracted so much attention? Yeah, I, I think people like a good story, and tragedy ends up being a good story. I will say as a, as a clinician and as a scientist that's very dedicated to, do, to doing work responsibly in this field, the publicity that surrounds these tragedies actually do us a great disservice. You'll take a race like Boston tomorrow, and if we're unfortunate enough to have a cardiac arrest, uh, the other 29,999 runners who have a successful race are pushed off to the side from the media's perspective, and all the emphasis goes on the one tragedy. So I think it's easy to write about. It's easy to write about and raise speculations about things that have gone wrong, doctors that have failed, patients that haven't listened. But what it really does is it detracts from the, 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 the good aspect of the sport. Uh, Amby and Dave, you both have personal reasons for wanting to be part of this discussion this morning. Dave, the morning before you have your biggest event of the year, and Amby in a very busy schedule here, and you both have taken time out of your morning to be here as part of this conversation. Uh, tell us a little bit about why this issue is so important for you. We'll start with you, Amby. Yes, thank you. So uh, I've never had a bad running day in my life. Except, uh, much to my surprise, four years ago, I went in for some coronary tests because I was just at that age, and I discovered that I have an incredibly high marker called uh, coronary artery calcium, and uh, it hasn't done anything to me yet, but it's not anything anybody would choose to have. I'm in like the 90th percentile for bad for this particular heart measure, and you know, I'm kind of used to being at the 99th percentile for good on all my other heart issues. So I panicked. I went to uh, some cardiologists. Dr. Thompson helped me find some good ones in Pennsylvania. And then I moved back to Connecticut and he became my consulting cardiologist. And he has liberty to say anything that he can remember about my heart health, which won't be very much. Uh, and uh, I've had a very interesting uh, relationship with Paul because I went to him in a panic. I said, Whatever you got, give it to me. I'm big, I'm tough, I can take it. And he, he said, eh, there ain't nothing wrong with you. You're running marathons, you're doing this, you're doing that. You know, uh, I've got nothing that's going to make you any healthier than you are right now. And I wasn't really very happy with that. But the more Paul and I talked uh, and the more I went through this process, I realized that my problem was in my head and my heart's what it is. Um, but I had to get over the psychological distress of thinking I was a wounded runner and a runner who was going to die on my next run. And once you have a heart uh, disease diagnosis, you, you don't forget it the next morning when you wake up and go out to run. It's there. It's always there. And uh, it's taken me a couple of years to get over it. But I'm still extraordinarily healthy, so far as I can tell. My running's terrific. I get slower every year, and I ask Paul to fix that, but he, so far he's no good at that. So um, I'm, I'm running well, I'm running healthy, and I'm hoping I can do it for a few more years. Uh, now, generally with, uh, with HIPAA, we don't publicly discuss patients' cases, but Ambie has given us the liberty to do that. And so without getting too personal, but certainly using his story as a backdrop, Paul, tell, tell us a little bit about Ambie's story and how common is this in your office? So it's not uncommon in my office. So let me explain exactly what went on with Ambie. When we try to decide if someone's got some underlying coronary disease, one of the ways we can do it is take a fancy x-ray of their chest. Because x-rays show you what? They show you bones, they show you calcium. When you deposit cholesterol in the coronary arteries, you also deposit calcium those coronary arteries. So you can look at this fancy x-ray and you can say, oh, there's no calcium there. If there's no calcium there, the person basically has 10 years of a ticket to ride. 
They're not going to get heart disease almost almost certainly for the next 10 years. If you have a lot of calcium, you're at increased risk. Now, the unusual thing that's becoming more apparent is there are a lot of lifelong distance runners who seem to have a lot of calcium in their coronary arteries. This is partly anecdotal, the number of patients I see from around the, the country who come in, but there are a fair number of runners who have a lot of coronary calcification. Now, is that because the running is accelerating heart disease? We don't think so. Why don't we think so? Because running seems to prevent the onset of heart disease. So are there other things going on? We think there may be other things going on, including some of the hormonal changes in the body that happens when you actually exercise. So what do we do about this? Well, first of all, I try to decide how important exercise is to that person. So for Ambi, it's a very important part of his life. So I'm less willing to restrict him. I tell every one of my patients with any sort of heart disease, the easiest thing for me to do is to say, you should just stop all sort of exercise. Because as, as Aaron said earlier, when you exercise very vigorously, you do increase the risk of a problem happening. But with someone like Ambi, there are ways that we can deal with it. And so what we do is we treat the cholesterol problem, even though he did not have much of a cholesterol problem, we treat it very aggressively. We get his cholesterol level as low as possible, and then we watch for symptoms. Um, but that's the issue with Ambi, is he turned out to have a lot of calcium. I've seen patients from around the country with a lot of calcium in their coronary and one of the things I do a lot of is cholesterol treatment. So we treat him very aggressively, as aggressively as he'll let me do it, with cholesterol-lowering drugs. And specifically, if we lined up people like Ambi and Ambi's age group, uh, and we x-rayed all of their chest runners and non-runners, is there a significant increase in this calcium deposition in runners versus non-runners? So the studies are not altogether conclusive, but the, there is a tilt toward the runners having more calcium in their coronary arteries. Now, the interesting thing about this is that it's not necessarily the calcium alone that you have to look at. The you know bone is strong. And one of the things that can happen with coronary arteries is it can actually get a crack in the coronary artery, like a cut in your skin, a crack in the coronary artery that bleeds and clots. And that's what causes a heart attack. The interesting thing about these runners is that the calcium seems to be quite dense. And if the calcium is dense, that actually lowers their chance of having a heart problem. So we don't know at the present time whether this increased calcium is a bad thing because it means they got an atherosclerosis, or a good thing, because it means they've got very solid uh, internal lining of their arteries and therefore less worrisome about cracking and getting a heart attack. So you're telling me it's an increased number and we don't know exactly what it means. It's an increased number. In your coronary artery calcification score, a lot of these runners have an increased number. If they were not runners, if they were just in off the street, I would be much more concerned than if they're runners who have done it lifelong. Now, if it's a runner who's done it for the past three years, I'm much more concerned than somebody who won the 1968 Boston Marathon has kept running since then. Ambie, so you talked a little bit about being conscious of this. How has this increased calcium score changed how you approach your running, or has it? As I recall, when I first saw Paul, he told me, you know, if I were you, for the next two years, I would just dial it back a little bit and we'll treat you with the statins and other meds and we'll see you know are you still alive in two years are you still ticking in two years are there any symptoms uh what's going on and i don't know if i listened to paul or i listened to the fear in my head which was telling me maybe i shouldn't push it for a while but as it turned out i went two years and i really didn't I kept running, of course, but all of my running was easy. I didn't race much. I didn't train hard. I just ran. 
and two years went by and I was the same guy except I was older and slower and so I thought well that's it I'm gonna start training hard again and I started going to the track and doing intervals once a week started doing hill training I started doing stuff that was really pretty hard uh, I wanted to get a little bit faster again uh, nothing happened I wish I could say the training immediately made, brought me back to age 22 uh, it didn't I'm finding it very hard to reverse the slowing process at age 70 um, but I enjoy those workouts occasionally I mix them in with the other stuff I've kept uh, running the Boston Marathon annually the last five years now and um, I can't see inside my heart to know what's going on uh, the only thing I really know is that orthopedically I'm really healthy which I'm very very thankful for and aside from getting slower my running is as good as it's ever been so let me just give you the rationale behind the two-year issue when you take a look at arteries and how quickly cholesterol can be taken out of the arteries and cholesterol can be taken out of the arteries you get a big regression or a big exit of the cholesterol in the first year a big regression in the second year and tends to flatten out so our goal was to stabilize those plaques in his coronary arteries and clinicians doctors such as myself think you can stabilize it by getting cholesterol out of it you get the most cholesterol out in two years so I said to Ambie look let's dial it back for two years and let's see where you are now I had my fingers in my ears when he was talking about how hard he's running now but you know I've always called kind of told him that uh, you know he's not going to the Tokyo Olympics for free all right so he should tone it back a little bit keep his exercise and keep happy with it but you know uh, think of my reputation I, I just w wanted to say one thing Paul has served more as a psychologist therapist counselor to me than he has as a cardiologist not that I don't appreciate the cardiology work but we just haven't done a whole lot I go into his office still and I, I beg him to give me this or that I have to beg him to give me an EKG which when I got the bill it was like $45 it wasn't even much money I don't think but um, talking with him about the importance of running in my life talking with another lifelong athlete and runner and many many time Boston marathoner that helped me realize for myself how important running was to me and while I don't have illusions about beating people and winning the Boston Marathon and going to the Olympics I, I do want to keep running and Paul's helped me keep running happily so there are tons of tests I can do on Ambi for which I'm well reimbursed and I'm glad to do them. But the, what we as doctors always think about is how beneficial is that test for that person? Is it really going to make their life different? The most important thing for Ambi, in my opinion, is to get his cholesterol levels extremely low and keep them there and let me know if anything changes his symptoms. Then he'll be surprised with how quickly things happen. Ambie, have you, we haven't talked about diet. Have you changed your diet as part of this process? Uh, I can't say that I've changed my diet. I'm a lifelong vegetarian, so I haven't made the, the meat mistakes, <laughs> if that's a mistake in some diets. I don't have a perfect diet. I love sugar. I love fatty foods. I love ice cream and stuff like that. Uh, I eat less of that than I, I used to, and also since I don't run 120 miles a week any longer, I'm not the uh, carb uh, monster that I used to be. I try to get a little bit more protein. Some people like you, Jordan, think I should develop muscles, and I'm trying, but nothing's happening. Keep working. 
Paul, just want to finish this part of our discussion with some recommendations on people checking their coronary calcium, getting x-rays. What's the current recommendation on how people should do those types of things? Should they be doing that? So the current recommendations on doing things like coronary calcium is to do it when you have to make a decision between going on a cholesterol drug or not going on a cholesterol drug. The coronary artery calcification score is one of our best, trumps nearly all the other measurements as in terms of whether somebody's going to have a heart problem or not. But it trumps in people who aren't distance runners. And what we need to do now is see if it still has the same risk estimate in distance runners. I don't think it does. I think there's something going on in the coronary arteries of athletes that are different than what's going on in the local person who doesn't do anything. So I think that's where we are. We're trying to decide whether this coronary artery calcification score is a useful thing in athletes or not. So here's what I would say. I would say if you, you, you should get a doctor you trust and follow their advice because it's very hard to make blanket recommendations in terms of what everybody should do. I do a lot of coronary artery calcification scores and I do them to decide whether I'm going to treat someone's cholesterol level or not treat them. But I don't do a lot as routine screening. And I think in general, um, you know, routine screening uh, is, is not necessarily the best way to go for all problems. I think what you, we should really do is take care of our risk factors overall in terms of our cholesterol and blood pressure. One last caveat, and that is, um, it's, we, nobody likes to hear this, but the truth is that the cholesterol-lowering drugs trump diet by a long stretch in terms of lowering cholesterol levels. And that's not that you can't do it with diet alone. It's that because most people can't do it with diet alone. Ambie and Paul, thanks so much for a look into your stories. We really appreciate you telling us about your medical history and Paul commenting about this issue of coronary calcium. Thanks so much. We're now going to hear from the longtime director of the Boston Marathon, Dave McGilvery, and his cardiologist, Dr. Aaron Bagish. Now, Dave, you have run more miles than probably anybody in this room. Tell us a little bit about your running life and about the issue of your heart and how you recognize you had a heart problem. Well, I, when I was growing up, I always wanted to be one thing, and that was an athlete. And I went out for all the teams, and inevitably I got cut from all of them. And I was always the last pick when my friends bucked up for sides. And um, as a result, by default, I started running because nobody can cut you from running. And um, I just started physically challenging myself at the young age of 12. And 12 years old, I ran 12 miles on my 12th birthday, and I started this tradition of running my age on my birthday and pretty much have done that for the last 50 years. And I ran my first Boston Marathon when I was 17. Uh, I was eight-banded. Uh, don't tell the race director that. But um, I dropped out uh, and heartbreak hill. I got taken to the Newton Wellesley Hospital in an ambulance and uh, vowed to come back the next year and complete it, which I did. And I decided that I wanted to do this for the rest of my life. And I've run the Boston Marathon since um, for 44 years in a row. And then in 1978, I come up with this concept that I wanted to do something that very few other people have ever done before. And I decided to run across the United States. So I trained really hard for that and did just that. Ran from Medford, Oregon to Medford, Massachusetts, 3,452 miles. Averaged close to 50 miles every single day for 80 days. And then I ran up the east coast of America and I did 24-hour runs and 24-hour swims and 24-hour bikes and triathlon around New England, and you get the point. Um, so I was a, a, an endurance uh, a junkie. Um, it just, I, it was just, I was very passionate about it. So um, about four years ago, as I was um, going out for my workouts, I started feeling some stress in my chest. I was wondering what's going on here, and 
I said, well, maybe it's the heat, maybe it's the cold, maybe it's the side of bed I woke up. I mean, I didn't know what it was. And I kept running and running, and, and but it was stressful. And uh, I was in a lot of discomfort. And that's when I contacted Dr. Bagish. And I said, this is what's going on. And we went through a battery of tests, EKGs, stress tests, echocardiograms, um, pulmonary tests, and basically just couldn't put our finger on it. And um, now I was getting discouraged because on the one hand, um, it was like a no-win situation because the tests were saying I was, I was okay, but I was feeling that I wasn't. And we both decided to give me the big boy tests and kind of look under the hood. So he performed a, a CAT scan on me. And I remember waiting at home for the results. And again, similarly, I was like, I don't know what I want to hear. On the one hand, I, I wanted him to call me and tell me you're clean. And on the other hand, I wanted him to call me and say, we found it. Because you can only fix it if you know what it is. And he told me what it was. It was a build calcification. He said, you got to get in here and we got to perform an angiogram. I didn't even know what an angiogram was. But when we went in, they did the angiogram. And um, the doctor who performed the angiogram comes back in the room and he looks at the monitor. And he says, here and here and here and here. And I, I was like, whoa. And I just, my life just went right by me. And I, I honestly thought I, like this was it. You know, I had maybe six months. And um, Dr. Baggers came in and we talked about it a little bit. You know, it wasn't so severe at that time, 70% here, 40% there. But what did I know? You know, this is all new to me. I never expected this. And I remember turning to him and I said, um, I have one question to ask you. He said, what's that? I said, is this reversible? And he said, well, it depends. I said, depends on what? He said, depends on the person. I said, well, you're looking at him. He says, you? Would you have discipline? We can work on it. And I said, sign me up. I remember going into the uh, recovery room and I've never broken down like that in my life. I broke down. And uh, he comforted me. My wife was there. But it was traumatic for me. I'm an endurance athlete. I've run across the country. I've done nine Ironmen. How can I? I'm fit. And for the first time in my life, I realized that just because you're fit doesn't mean you're healthy. I broke the rules. And I started thinking about what caused this. Now, yes, I have a history of heart illness in my family. My grandfather's died of heart attacks. My dad died of aortic stenosis. So I knew that genetically I was predisposed to this. But there was more than that. And, you know, for me, as with a lot of endurance athletes, we think that if the furnace is hot enough, it'll burn. And so I was eating anything and everything. You know, I'd go out for a 20-mile run, and I'd go home and have half a pint of ice cream. Why? Because I earned it. And I was going to burn it off anyways. Well, that caught up. After 50 years, that caught up to me. So I decided to change everything. There were three things. There was diet. There was sleep, because I always thought sleep was overrated. I still do. And there's stress. This was in 2013. That was a bad year for a lot of us, me in particular. So I said, I'm changing everything. And I changed on a dime. October 9th. 2013 I'll never forget that day and I went home 
and I changed my diet. I haven't had red meat. I haven't had a beer. I haven't had soda. I haven't had sugar. Nothing. Can I have some of that stuff? Yes. Why did I choose not to? Because I was punishing myself. I was punishing myself for doing this to me. Um, I shouldn't have done that. I should have listened to other people, and I didn't. And I was setting a bad example for my children and, and for athletes all over. So I changed everything. In a matter of about four months, I lost 27 pounds, lowered my cholesterol level by almost 100 points. And I said to Dr. Beggers, I want to go back to Hawaii and do the Ironman. I hadn't done it in 25 years. I'd done it eight times, but not in 25 years. Can I do it? He says, we got to work on it. He wouldn't give me his full commitment yet. So we worked on it. We worked on it. We worked on it. And then the craziest thing happened. I wrote to Ironman. They let me in. NBC Sports wanted to follow me. And Ironman asked me for something that no one has ever asked me for before. They asked me for a note from my doctor. And I was like, do you know who I am, what I've done? But I understood what they were getting at. So I just, I turned to Aaron, I called him and I said, can I have a note? And he said, not yet, not yet. We gotta get you back in here and do another angiogram. So I went back in there and had another angiogram done. And he looked at me and he says, wow, wow, what an improvement. I mean, it was, he can tell you, percentages. I reversed it 20%, 30%, whatever it was. And it just gave me the confidence that I'm going in the right direction now. And I went back to Hawaii. I think he wrote the note. I went back to Hawaii and did the Ironman again. And ever since, um, I know Ambi and, and um, Dr. Thompson said, dial it back. I did just the opposite. I mean, maybe not a good thing, but I did just the, I was so motivated to get myself in the best shape of my life, and I did. I did in 2014, I did five marathons, I did, the, I did the Ironman, I was just so motivated because of that improvement. And the last point is, my story was told in the Wall Street Journal, Runner's World, all over. You wouldn't believe the number of emails and calls I got from athletes all over the country saying that they've had similar symptoms that I did and did nothing about it. I have about seven friends who had similar situations who went out for a run one day and never come home. Why? Either they were in a state of denial, they knew they had something, but they were denying it because I'm going to punch through it, or they just didn't know it. I got a second chance because of him. He saved my life. He saved my life. And so I got cards and letters from people all over the country saying, because they heard the story, and they said, if it can happen to him, it can happen to me, I check myself into the hospital, and three days later, I come out with three stents, and Dave, you saved my life. And that's what it's all about for me. It's just making people aware that it can happen to any of us. Well, I've got to take a deep breath here. <laughs> Aaron, that's quite a story. Uh, and that's a lot of responsibility as the cardiologist of any patient, but certainly somebody as such a devoted runner as, as Dave. Is his story common? And more broadly, he was getting pain in his chest and he came to see you. Is that when runners come and call someone like you or Paul, or what, what's the groundwork on this issue? Yeah, I mean, I, I do what I do because I treasure working with people like this, and, and it's an amazing story. There, there, are, there are a number of things that we should unpack about Dave's experience, and if I can just move through them sequentially, I think it would be worthwhile for the, for the listeners. First is the, the best decision Dave ever made was to listen to his body. He knew something wasn't right. I wasn't the first doctor he had told that to. He had told that to many doctors. 
wasn't getting a satisfactory explanation, not because people weren't doing their job, but because sometimes it's hard to tease out why people don't feel well. And we did a bunch of tests. Some of them were pristinely normal. Some of them were inconclusive. But there's an important part of Dave's story that was left out of this, and that is the, the game changer for me was on a September afternoon when he and I decided to go for a run, which I try to do as often as I can with patients when I can't figure them out. We ran up the Esplanade in Boston together, and I'm a little bit younger than Dave. I'm not a better runner, but I'm a little younger, so I can still keep a decent pace. And I'm watching my watch. We're running 7.30s. We're talking comfortably. We're running 7 minute. We're talking comfortably. About 6.45, Dave's breathing was off. And now that may just be Dave's fitness, but Dave's a pretty fit guy. And as I watched him and as his breathing became more uncomfortable, and we stopped and I said, is this what you feel when you're not feeling well? And he said, yeah. And I said, do you have any twinge in your chest? And he said, yeah. So that, to me, was a pretty good visual indicator that this was not just an, a guy who was out of shape. There was something wrong with him. And that's what prompted the CAT scan. Now, let me just say a word about the CAT scan. We've talked in Ambi and Paul's discussion about CAT scanning to look for coronary calcification. That was not what we were doing here. We were doing a test that not only looked for calcification, but that looked for non-calcified plaques, which actually defined how much blockage there are in arteries. Very, very different test than what Ambi had. I actually rarely order calcium scores in my patients because I just don't find them to be quite useful in athletes. But when someone's not feeling well and we're suspecting coronary disease, a coronary angiogram done with a CAT scan, which is the test we did in Dave's case, is actually an incredibly useful intermediate step to determine whether they need an invasive test or not. Dave had a lot of disease on this CAT scan, and not just calcium, but he had buildup of non-calcified cholesterol-rich plaques, which caught my attention and made me say, okay, Dave, the time has come to do an invasive angiogram, which we did. Now, as a doctor, when you put a patient through a test, you like to have actionable results, things that you can fix. Oftentimes, when we see blockages and people have symptoms, they're easy to fix with stents, or even in some cases, bypass operations. Dave, because he's a tricky guy, had the worst case scenario. He had enough disease to explain his symptoms, but in all the wrong places to fix it, and not enough to do something as dramatic as surgery. So we stopped, we talked, and his immediate response to the gravity of the situation was what led me to believe that we could opt to address this with medication and diet, because I knew his commitment was sufficient that this was going to be successful. And I've worked with a lot of inspiring people, but very few have come close to the lifestyle change he made. Literally overnight, he switched everything about who he was, stopped getting the 3 a.m. emails, although they still come in once in a while. He changed his diet completely. He started taking medications, which for some time I had been asking him to do and he was not interested in doing. I saw him eight weeks after his catheterization and he was a different person. Now, I want to address this issue of his decision to participate in the Ironman because that is, that's a tricky thing and I want to talk about the note. The concept of a doctor telling someone what they can or cannot do when it comes to athletes with heart disease is antiquated. We're not gatekeepers anymore. We're educators and we're partners in decision making. In Dave's situation, we spent a lot of time talking about the pros and cons of both continuing to exercise and also continuing to think about pushing the body hard in a competitive nature. And we, as I said, we talked about the pros, many of the things that Paul has already talked about, the health benefits, the disease-modifying benefits of being a high-end exerciser. They're tangible and they're really important. And so the last thing in the world I'd ever want to do is talk Dave off the exercise ledge. However, there's an inherent risk in doing something like an Ironman, even if you're healthy. So we had a lot of metered discussions about the best fit for Dave. But what became clear to both of us was that having this goal, literally as an, a one-year anniversary of his diagnosis with coronary disease, was going to be an important part of him 
continuing to find the motivation and the dedication to be the healthiest athlete and person, person, not just athlete, but person he could be. And we spent a lot of time over that year talking about preparation, training strategies, diet, and as Paul alluded to, most importantly, doing this all while being on the best medical regimen possible. And the note that I wrote to Ironman ultimately didn't say, Dave is cleared to race this race. It said, Dave and I have discussed the pros and cons of racing Ironman, and I support his decision based on knowing who he is and based on knowing what his medical condition is. He went to Ironman, and he was a screaming success. He had a great race, and I'll tell you, I sat at home and watched him on the computer as he was going, hoping very much that that would happen. But that was the beginning of the next phase, and that is the phase we've been in now, which has been in maintenance and thinking about how exercise diet, stress reduction, sleep, all of the things that have made him turn 180 in his life, how we're going to continue this and and be on a good maintenance program. And it's been a real joy to be at his side for this. And in general, do most endurance athletes and runners know when it's time to come see somebody like you? Men particularly are very bad at going to the doctor. They generally don't go. They should go once a year. Many don't. They rarely go to the doctor, and how would they end up in a cardiologist's office, and should they be doing that? Yeah, so I, can, I guess I can speak to that with a little bit of a, of a numeric approach. So in our practice, which is a busy, high-volume athlete referral practice, about a third of the people are sent by doctors like you, sports medicine docs, that are concerned about their patients. About a third are sent by other cardiologists who have identified that there's a heart problem and they're an athlete and they don't really feel comfortable with that nexus. And then a third of people self-refer. They just simply say, something's not right. I'd like to come see you and talk to you. I think that happens too infrequently. I think that athletes who listen to their body and detect changes should be very proactive about speaking to a doctor. Now, does that need to be a cardiologist? No, not off the bat. It just needs to be someone that understands them as a patient and understands the rigors of the exercise regimen that they have chosen to follow. And if that culminates in a decision that there's risk of heart disease, then certainly involving a cardiologist is important. But the first step is athlete recognizing the lack of invincibility and talking to a doctor they trust who understands them. And many athletes have shortness of breath. Like people say, like, my knee hurts when I run. And I say, well, you know, everybody knee hurts a little bit when they run. My foot hurts when I run a little bit. So how do you differentiate my fitness isn't exactly right and I'm huffing and puffing versus I may have an underlying cardiac issue? Yeah, I, I never use the term shortness of breath without the phrase in front of it, inappropriate. So inappropriate shortness of breath is breathing that is work that is disproportionate to the amount of effort that you're participating in. So as athletes, we all know that the faster you run, the harder your breathing feels, the higher your respiratory rate goes in it. If someone's been doing this for years, they have a sense of where their breathing should be at a certain pace or going up a certain incline. If that changes and there's a disconnect between how hard the breathing feels and how fast you're pushing, that becomes an inappropriate shortness of breath. And that should be the wake-up call to start talking to someone about it. You've talked a lot about symptoms, so feeling shortness of breath, et cetera. But when people go to the doctor, they get their vital signs checked, heart rate, blood pressure. Uh, tell us about those kind of things, and should people be looking out for those as markers of heart disease? Yeah, it's 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 a great question, Jordan. It's part of a bigger issue, and that is the, the often um, disconnect between how good someone looks and what their numbers might tell us as physicians. And the, what that often translates into is doctors brushing off either a high blood pressure or a slightly elevated cholesterol because a guy or a gal just looks so good. 
So one of the biggest messages that I, and I'm sure Paul would agree with that we try to get out to our colleagues is that regardless of how healthy and how fit someone may look, even if they come in and tell you they're running 60 miles a week comfortably, it's not permission to ignore high blood pressure, high cholesterol, or, or other risk factors. In fact, it is perhaps even more important in folks that push themselves hard to be aggressive with risk factor modification. And so these numbers, as you alluded to, that you get when someone sits down and a blood pressure is measured, or you do a simple blood test, those are absolutely key in keeping runners healthy. Do most people's symptoms come on after the numerical changes, or do some people at times get symptoms before we see changes in blood pressure and heart rate and things like that? Well, risk factors typically precede the development of disease by many years. So if you can identify risk factors and modulate them early on in life, then you go a long way toward preventing disease. It takes a fair bit of heart disease to actually generate symptoms. And so once someone gets to the point where they're symptomatic, and when I say symptomatic, I mean feeling something during their exercise, chest discomfort, shortness of breath, diminished exercise tolerance, they the cat's out of the bag. The disease is there, and then the the motivation really turns on what we call secondary prevention, which is doing everything we can to either halt the progression or, in best-case scenarios like Dave, reverse disease. And finally, Dave talked a lot about the modifiers in his life that he did once he learned he had heart disease. My question to you is, for the people who are listening to this podcast, most of whom don't have heart disease, what kind of modification should they be making in their lives so they don't end up with a story like Dave's? Well, Dave's experience kind of highlights um, both the pros and some of the pitfalls of many capable endurance athletes. And the first place to start is dietary intake. The concept of being able to eat whatever you want to eat simply because you maintain a, a thin or lean body because you're burning 2,000 calories a day running um, is, is really a mistake. Um, I will also say that we know far less about diet than I wish we did, but um, what is clear is that eating a diet that's rich in simple sugars, processed foods, just because you can burn those calories is not a good idea. So it gets down to basics. Diets that are rich in vegetables, fruits, lean proteins, typically those that fly or swim, uh, and really avoiding anything that's been packaged or turned white um, is the, the diet I recommend for runners. I also personally follow a mammal meat-free diet, which I recommend to many of my patients. There's been some good work showing that mammal meat may have an inflammatory effect, um, which may affect not only the arteries, but other parts of the body. Uh, I made a switch to be mammal-free two years ago, and within a week, I felt like I was recovering better from my workouts. So again, not a lot of great outcomes-driven science to support that, but if people are looking for something else to do, that's something to consider. And Dave... So you've talked about your awareness around this. As an, as an athlete now, has this changed how you go about your actual running and triathloning? Yeah, my um, difficulty breathing has gone away. I don't have it anymore. And it, it, I, don't, I truly believe it wasn't because of medication. It was because of the changes I made. And um, I, I do believe that the majority of my issue was self-inflicted. And I... I, I try to tell people that um, the most important person in the world is you. And whether you care about yourself or not, you should, because there are so many other people on the planet who need you, who care about you. Do it for them then. And for me, people say, well, was it really difficult to change? I said, I looked up at a monitor and I saw my life flashing by thinking it wasn't going to continue very much longer and I needed to be around for my children and my family. No, it wasn't difficult. It wasn't difficult at all. I wanted to save my own life and so far so good. 
but I still have, I have a lot of work to do. I have a lot of things I want to continue to accomplish. My next goal, if, if, if he lets me, is to do seven marathons on seven continents in seven days. So two weeks ago, I went out and just simulated it a little bit and ran four marathons and three half marathons in seven days, you know, just around my neighborhood. Why? Because I just, it's in my DNA to challenge myself. It's not about intensity, it's about endurance. And so far, so good. By making that change, I'm able to continue to set these personal goals and, um, and feel that I can continue to do it for, for the foreseeable future. Aaron and Dave, thank you so much for sharing your story. Really appreciate you being here uh, today. It's been a pleasure. It's been a fun group to be a part of and a great discussion. I want to close with some final thoughts that each of these panelists have had about how their experience either treating or dealing with heart disease has impacted them. And we'll start with you, Paul. So I think the key take-home message and the difference between Dave and Ambie is symptoms. So runners and people in general need to pay attention to themselves and listen to their bodies. If you have symptoms that come on during exercise and go away with rest, now they can be quite varied. They can be ear pain, they can be jaw pain, they can be neck pain, they can be stomach pain, they can be chest pain, they can be arm discomfort. And I said pain, but I really shouldn't say pain because it's often described as a discomfort rather than the pain. But if you have symptoms, you ought to get them evaluated. That's the key difference. Because if someone has symptoms, we as clinicians can do things to make them better. If you look at individuals who drop dead during exercise, about a third of them have symptoms that were recognized. And what we think is many more of those people had symptoms that they chose to ignore. Pay attention to yourself. Don't ignore yourself. And what does get evaluated mean? Get evaluated means to go to somebody that you trust as a physician and discuss your symptoms with them. And if you remain concerned after that discussion with your primary care physician, ask to see somebody else. But that's what means get evaluated. Be seen by somebody that's knowledgeable in the business, knowledgeable about heart problems, knowledgeable about athletes, and then go from there. But don't, don't be your own doctor. You know, there's this old saying that um, the person that has themselves um, as their doctor has a fool for their physician. So you don't want to be your doctor. Are men worse at doing that than women? I think men are worse at that than women. And there are a lot of studies that show that, um, uh, that men less frequently see physicians for major problems than women. Interesting. Amby, your take-home point around how this issue has touched you. Yeah, for me, it, it's, uh, you know, sometimes it's tougher than I would like it to be because we have known since the wisdom of cardiologist Dr. George Sheehan that rule number one is listen to your body, and all the docs tell us that, and if you've got a symptom, do something. But, hey, I'm an old-time New England road runner. I'm mean, I'm lean, I'm tough. I won the Boston Marathon. I've run a few miles with Dave McGillivray, and I sometimes think I can just push through everything. I'm lucky, so far as I know, I haven't had any symptoms, and I just hope I'm smart enough when I do have symptoms uh, that I call up uh, Paul real quickly and figure out what the next stage is, and that I can be as smart as Aaron and Dave were about treating them. Aaron, what are your final thoughts? Final thoughts. So I think the, the, the one of the themes that has been um, consistent across this entire discussion this morning is about the importance of the of the patient physician partnership and I just would like to emphasize in closing that um, 
doctors and patients uh, enter this relationship together and they start on a journey. And at the risk of sounding a bit touchy-feely, I'll use Dave's case to examine what this relationship is all about. It's a give and take where doctor provides information and also discloses when information is unavailable and then works with the patient both through understanding who they are from a medical perspective but also from a psychosocial perspective to make decisions with them, not for them, but with them that are the best fit for who they are. And if that partnership, which can be culled down in a single two-word phrase, which is shared decision-making, works well, then the outcome, regardless of where it goes, is going to have been a thoughtful one that both people uh, have enjoyed being a part of. And finally, Dave. Well, I don't know an awful lot about sedentary life. Um, Not much grass grows under my feet, but I do know about the athletic life. And what I've learned through this is that perhaps the most vulnerable people out there on the planet are fit athletes. Um whether in a state of denial or um, just, again, wanting to challenge themselves or just just not, not knowing. Um, I've always been a firm believer of um, not putting out fires but preventing them. And um, people should really, again, like everyone is saying, pay attention to their body and their symptoms, and if they feel something is just not right, shame on them for not taking the steps to to confirm that and, and then taking the steps to correct it. Um, the biggest lesson I learned, and I said it before, is just because you're fit doesn't mean you're healthy. Again, I'm Dr. Jordan Metzl, and I've been talking with Ambie Burfoot, the 1968 winner of the Boston Marathon, and his cardiologist, Dr. Paul Thompson, the director of cardiology and the Athletes Heart Program at the Hartford Hospital, and with Dave McGilvery, the race director of the Boston Marathon, and his cardiologist, Dr. Aaron Bagish, associate director of the Cardiovascular Performance Program at the Massachusetts General Hospital Heart Center and co-medical director of the Boston Marathon. On behalf of Runners World, thank you so much for joining us in this discussion, and we hope we found it helpful. Thanks, Jordan. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. If you haven't yet given us a rating or a review, We would love it if you take a couple minutes and tell us what you think. I'm Christine Fennessy, one of the editors here at Runner's World. I produce this week's show with Sylvia Ryerson. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.